You've been listening to amazing music here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Coming up next, JM Sunday with Matis Weingast here at NahumSiegel.com.
Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of JM Sunday right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Matis Weingast, and I'm your host. Today is the 31st day in the month of July, 3rd of Av. We are in our nine days format, and uh, we are here for the next two hours. Uh, if you're studying Dafyomi, today is uh, Ksubis Chafhei. 25, and um, we are uh, we are happy you could join us. I hope you had a wonderful Shabbos and a, uh, and a great week that passed, and looking forward to this next week ahead. Because we are in our nine days format today, we at least on, on JM Sunday are going to be presenting uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine for the next um, for the next two hours. Uh, we will be joined by Rabbi Goldwasser at 7.30 and uh, by Hannah Julian with the latest news from Israel at 8 o'clock, uh, including a report on the passing of Rabbi Yitzchak Tuvi Weiss, who was the chief rabbi uh, of Yerushalayim for the uh, Eda Haredes. And uh, she'll give us up-to-date information on that. Um, so that's what we're going to be presenting. In our area, it's 69 degrees outside right now, but cool compared to the way it's been. It's sunny, going up to a high of 88 and then back down to 68. In Jerusalem right now, it's 87 degrees and sunny, going down to 67 later on. Uh, I uh, was here on Friday morning on JM and the AM, and uh, that's when we had a, uh, a great celebratory morning. Uh, as we announced the birth of Esther Liel to Kayla and Benjamin Siegel, and uh, tremendous Mazel Tov to Nachum and Stacy Siegel, and uh, Naomi and Stephen Levinson of Woodmere, proud first-time grandparents, both sets, and uh, a, uh, a Mazel Tov to the entire family. So that was great to uh, to have that announcement on Sunday and celebrate with everyone. And we again wish them a tremendous Mazel Tov. So at this time, we're going to go over to Rabbi Beryl Wine. He will be talking about the destruction of the first temple. Here is Rabbi Beryl Wine. The destruction of the first temple, which is the event that uh, I'm going to discuss with you tonight, has to be viewed not only in a political and diplomatic and uh, military and national sense, but it has to be viewed in a uh, cosmic uh, spiritual sense, which is how Chazal, how our rabbis looked at the matter and therefore were able to lend to it a, uh, an aura 
that uh, not only made it uh, special, if one could use that word, or made it uh, something to be remembered, but they uh, pointed out that it was a change in nature. It's not just a change in, uh, in society or in political power in the world. It's not the destruction of the Roman Empire, the fall of Rome, and it's not uh, the uh, destruction of Berlin. It's not just that the Jewish people were defeated, but that it is compared to a uh, change in all of nature, a change in all of the world. And we'll see that in certain, uh, certain ideas that the rabbis uh, have told us that I wish to share with you uh, because of the fact that uh, it has, uh, I believe, a uh, clear insight into uh, the Jewish view of history generally and certainly the Jewish view of the uh, destruction of the temple. The facts of the matter are, relatively speaking, simple enough. Uh, the uh, Novi Yermio had warned all of the years that the... Jewish people were living, uh, the kingdom of Yehuda was living in a false sense of security, that somehow they felt that they would be able to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, against the power of Bovel, and the Jewish people would be able to sustain such a rebellion. They deluded themselves to think that Egypt uh, would protect them. They said, uh, much as you hear in the news today, that Egypt needed Israel, there though a great power needs a small power. Small powers like to think that way, but in the reality of uh, real politic, uh, the great powers don't need the small powers at any time. And uh, they deluded themselves to think that Egypt uh, would uh, rather fight Bovel uh, north of Jerusalem than to fight it on its own borders. Uh, Mitzrayim was not willing to do anything like that. Mitzrayim was perfectly willing to allow Bovel to destroy Yerushalayim and destroy the kingdom of Yehuda and to uh, attempt later to come to its own accommodation, which it was never really able to, but they were not willing to spill one drop of Egyptian blood on behalf of the kingdom of Judah. The other delusion was that somehow Nebuchadnezzar would forget about them. He would allow the rebellion to go unchecked. It would allow the rebellion to uh, take its natural course and that the, uh, he, was bu he was busy with other things, with more important things, with bigger matters. And therefore, he couldn't be bothered by such a uh, small event as a little country uh, that had previously been a puppet of his now asserting some sort of rule. It was the same type of delusion, if we want to put it in modern, uh, uh, in a modern frame of reference, uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968. What difference does it make to the Soviet Union if uh, the uh, system in Czechoslovakia changed, if it became more relaxed, if uh, Dubček took power? What, what, what was the problem? Or Hungary in 1956? or Poland today. Uh, there is no reason to, uh, to fear any of that. And because of that, so uh, 
they felt certain that Nebuchadnezzar would not expend the personal and national energy necessary to put down the rebellion. Uh, throughout the history of humanity, uh, small countries that have mounted such rebellions have always had that in the back of their mind, that somehow they weren't worth the effort of the large country to put the rebellion down. We'll see that in the time of the Second Temple, after the destruction of the Second Temple, when Bar Kokhba made a, uh, an initially successful rebellion against the Romans, he also uh, deluded himself to think that the Romans weren't going to send extra legions and make a great effort to put it down. It just wasn't worth it. History has shown us that that is a, uh, a profound error. And the king of Bovel was not allowed, would not allow Yerushalayim to slip out of his orbit. And he would not allow Tzitkiyo to breach his oath of fealty to him. And he came with his whole army. And he came to put down the rebellion. And he came to put it down with a vengeance and with a cruelty and with a finality. Uh, not only to teach the Jews a lesson, but to knock out of the minds of anybody else in his kingdom the idea that somehow you could cross Nebuchadnezzar, you could cross the Babylonian Empire, and nothing would happen. Well, he was going to make certain that you knew that something was going to happen. So the facts of the matter are that in the spring of that year, uh, I've discussed with you uh, on a much earlier tape at the beginning of the history series, a question of the dates, the uh, dates that are involved here. But most historians agree that the year we're talking about is the year 586 before the Common Era. And in the spring of that year, Nebuchadnezzar came from the north and he invaded the, the outposts of Judah and by the early part of the summer, his army had encamped around the city. And his strategy was the time-honored strategy of the of uh, of the uh, stronger army, uh, siege and attrition, just to wear the enemy down. And he brought his siege machines. He brought the lines of the siege closer and closer. And uh, in the Tanakh, it is recorded that on the ninth day of the month of Tammuz, the walls of the city were weakened sufficiently that the Babylonian army was able to invest the walls and come into the city. The second Churban, uh, uh, the walls of the city uh, buckled on the 17th of Thomas. And the fast day that we commemorate is that of the second temple, not of the first temple. In fact, after the destruction of the first temple, when the Jews were able to return 70 years later and rebuild the temple and rebuild their government. So even Tishabov was canceled. Even the fast day of Tishabov was canceled as a national fast day. It was uh, restored with a vengeance, unfortunately, after the second temple. But the ninth day of Tammuz, which is not a particularly joyful day on our calendar, is not the day of the... Uh, of the dis of the walls in the first temple, it's the day of the walls being uh, destroyed in the second, bre breached in the second temple. So he uh, his army arrived, and the, under the command of Nebuzaradan, his uh, general, who was uh, a fearsome person, 
his reputation for cruelty and butchery went before him and his army took hold in the city and within a month they had destroyed all pockets of Jewish resistance and the Jews who could fled uh, tens of thousands died in the uh, siege in the uh, hunger and pestilence and by the sword and by fire uh, thousands of them fled many of them attempted to flee to Egypt to the south and many of them were allowed to flee by the Babylonians who then just waited for them and herded them together into giant slave camps uh, where they would transport them into the exile into Babylonia our rabbis tell us that uh, the ninth day of Ov <coughs> The uh, at sunset of the beginning of the ninth day of Av. Again, here we're talking of uh, of the first temple. Uh, the uh, Babylonians purposely set fire to the building. Now, uh, the second temple was even more fireproof than the first, but the first also, to a great extent, was a building of stone and of marble. And uh, should not have burned easily. <laughs> but apparently the accelerant that was used to set fire was of such a nature that it got the fire so hot that even the stones burned. That the building collapsed in the fire. And it burned the entire day of the ninth of Ov as well. Our uh, tradition is, according to the Talmud in the Gomorrah Tainis, is that the first base of Migdish was destroyed. Um, uh, the fire began on Motsoi Shabbos. In other words, Tishabo was on a Sunday. And that the fire began uh, at the, the end of Shabbos, that uh, as night fell, and that the uh, base of Migdish burned all day Sunday, and it was uh, destroyed completely. In its destruction, uh, many of the artifacts of the Beis Amigdash were captured, and many of them disappeared. The Talmud tells us, and we read in the Megillah of Esther, that Ahasuerosh had inherited, when the Persians, the Persians and the Medes conquered the Babylonians, they inherited the museums and the treasure houses of the Babylonians. And amongst the booty that they inherited were kalim of the Beis Amigdash, were utensils of the Beis Amigdash. Cups, uh, goblets, uh, uh, all sorts of gold, uh, all sorts of gold, uh, golden objects which they preserved. These uh, items are uh, referred to the kalim, mikalim shonim, it says in the Megillah. And we read those three words with the uh, melody of Eicha to indicate that those were the utensils that were used by Ahasuerus, and he used them for the banquet that he invited all the Jews to attend. And because he had to have kosher uh, food and kosher utensils, he took the utensils of the temple, and then you had the irony of a generation of Jews 
participating in a banquet honoring Achashverosh, the Persian emperor, by drinking from the utensils of their own Beis Amigdash, which was destroyed and the utensils were captured. One of the many ironies of Jewish history. In any event, the... Uh, the uh, destruction of the temple was complete and the destruction of the government was complete and the destruction of the country was complete and the Jews were taken away into exile. That's the story. That's the simple historic fact of what happened. But uh, to uh, say that is not to understand what happened. (coughs) And certainly not to be able to deal with it in the uh, context that Jewish history and that Chazal have always dealt with the destruction of the Beis HaMignish. That is, as I mentioned before, in a cosmic fashion. Let me give you a a few ideas that I want to discuss, and uh, I think it will help make the matter clearer. First of all, you had a complete, uh, unbelievable thing happen that God destroyed his own house. That God, so to speak, if one could use such a phrase, God contributed to what in effect was a uh, denigration of God. Because uh, the uh, Beis Amigdash was uh, in existence for over four centuries. It was world famous. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Everybody knew knew that the Jews were different. Everybody knew that the Jews were monotheists in a world of paganism. And here the uh, god of monotheism, so to speak, allows himself to be defeated by the pagans. He allows Nebuchadnezzar, who is a uh, pagan ruler, and the representative of all that is evil uh, to somehow triumph and burn down God's house. Now that's one of the great questions in history. That's the same type of question as uh, the Holocaust uh, raises. It's the same type of question that that Eov, that Job raises in, in on a personal level. How does God let that happen? Where is God to defend himself? And no matter what the Jews were, and we're going to discuss, I'm going to discuss with you the, uh, the, the negative attributes of the Jewish people which led to the destruction of the temple. But no matter what they were, they weren't worse than the Babylonians. So why should the Babylonians win? Why should God allow his own house to be destroyed? Now, that is a uh, tremendously difficult philosophic matter to deal with. And the Churban made that matter real. Now, the, one of the reasons, you see it in the words of all of the commentators to the uh, Tanakh, one of the reasons why the Jews never took seriously the prophecies of Yeshayahu, let us say, or Yirmiyo or Micha, or any of the other prophets who uh, time and time again foretold the destruction of the temple. It isn't that, that it was a surprise to them. For uh, 
at least 150, if not 200 years, uh, they had been constantly warned that it's coming, that the temple will be destroyed, and the Jewish government will come to an end, you're all going to go into exile. They had been told that the words that appear in the Chumash and the Tochecha and the terrible predictions of the troubles, that those words are literally true. It's going to happen. Why didn't the Jewish people believe it? Well, first of all, the nature of a person is that uh, we are, even the worst pessimist is by being human, an optimist. And... Uh, the Jewish people thought that it was perhaps hyperbole, it was uh, exaggeration, it was poetic license, or it wasn't going to happen to them, you know, it's going to happen a hundred years from now. It's a little like the national debt. We all know it's going to plot, but as long as it doesn't plot while I'm around, you know, so well, who cares? You know, meanwhile, I'm driving my car and I have my house and, you know, and America's America, so, yeah. It's very hard to sell people on the fact that they have to preserve something for their grandchildren or for the next generation. People aren't going to stop driving their automobiles because of the ozone layer because a hundred years from now it's going to be hot and the, and the country will be... No, people don't think that way. The mere fact that we are mortal and we know we are mortal and we know that our mortality is limited uh, at the outside to a century so if I tell you, you know, 350 years from now it's going to be a disaster, and no one will be nervous about it. Chazal commented that that was uh, one of the reasons why Noah didn't have much of a following either. He said, 120 years are going to be the mob. What? Oh, 120 years will be the mob. You know, 120 years of Chicago Cubs will win the pennant. I mean, that's not a problem to us. It's not relevant to us. And therefore people don't listen. So even those that were willing to listen to the prophets felt that it's not going to be now. Yeah, there's no question that the Churban is going to come, but it's not going to come now. But the main reason why they didn't listen is because they said God cannot afford it. So to speak, the Jews had God blackmailed. How can God do that? We're the only people he has on the world. And we at least officially subscribe to his brand of monotheism. And we at least are, uh, you know, we're, we're the best that he's got around. It could be, uh, you know, it could be that we're only C+, plus, but, it's, but it's better than nothing. And this temple has got not only God's name on it, his presence, Kaviochel, is there. Every day there are regular miracles. In the first temple, the miracles were apparent to all. The, uh, the, uh, the candelabra never was extinguished. The uh, fire on the altar always crouched like a lion. Uh, all sorts of miracles. Uh, and in Pirkei Ovis, we read of the miracles that exist in the second temple. So God is there. So how is he? God isn't, you know, God isn't going to be counterproductive. He's going to allow his building to be destroyed. And therefore, to a certain extent, we can do whatever we want. Because what's he going to do, right? It's like the, uh, the son that's working in his father's business. 
so the son can embezzle and cheat and not show up on Monday mornings and do a lousy job and everything, because what's the old man going to do, right? The, the name of the company, you know, it's Jones and Son. What's he going to do? Going to kick him out? With them? What? He's got him. Well, that's how the Jewish people felt about God. They felt that they had him. And because of that, therefore... Uh, the destruction of the temple was a great philosophic shock to the Jewish people. And it, uh, in a uh, very perverse and uh, different fashion, uh, you have to understand that the destruction of the temple and the survival of the destruction of the temple was a triumph of the spirit of the Jewish people. We will get back to uh, Rabbi Wine in uh, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, right now, it is approaching 7.30 in the morning here on JM Sunday. Matus Wine guest with you. It is the 31st of July, 3rd of Av. And uh, we're going to be getting to Rabbi Goldwasser in a second. Uh, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, we are actually... Ready for Rabbi Goldwasser. So at this time, each and every uh, Sunday through Thursday, we present to you Rabbi David Goldwasser. Rabbi Goldwasser's words, L'zecha Nishmas Rav Zerb, Rabbi Yosef Alevi, and L'zecha Nishmas Esther Bas, Rabbi Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We read in the Parsha, by Daber Moshe Roshe Matos, Hashem Yisbarach spoke, to the heads of all the matos, Libne Yisrael, to the children of Israel, Lemor, saying, Hashem. This is that which Hashem has commanded you. Our Chachomim asks the question, Why do we read Parshas Matos, Ben Amitzarim, during the three weeks between Shivasu Betamuz and Tishabov? Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter comments, the reason that we say Kol Nidre in the beginning of the Yom Adin on Yom Kippur is because there are a lot of people that didn't do tshuva because of Yeush. They simply gave up. The individual thinks, how could I do tshuva on such a mice of an Avera? I've sinned too much. The Mesilas Yisharim, written by Ramosha Chaim Lutzato, also asks the same question and answers that this is the greatness of tshuva. It's like a nether, it's like a vow. Just like if a person made a vow, and then he begins to ask about his vow, he can't do it. Whatever he accepted upon himself, he sees that either it's physically too difficult, or there are obstacles in his way. At that point, he can go to a based in, and they will be mater nether. When the nether is released, it is Freya. It's as if the nether was never made at all. Retroactively, it's taken off. Tshuva, repentance, operates in the same way. It is Freya. Retroactively, it uproots the incident, the sin. Therefore, when we come to the beginning of the Yom Adin, the beginning of Yom Kippur, we say Kol Nidre. We realize that just like if a person made a nether, it is nekar l'mafreya, it's removed retroactively. 
we should never give up on doing tshuva because by doing tshuva, we remove the sin from existence. According to this, we can well understand why we read Parshas Matos, which speaks about Nidarim, about making vows during this time. It's because these days, the days between Shivasubatamos and Tishabov, are days of tshuva. All the Svarim say that Tamus is the Rashi Tevas, it's an acronym, Zumane Tshuva Memash Meshimu Boim. The times of tshuva are coming. When we read this parsha, it gives hope to even those that gave up on doing tshuva. We should all be encouraged by the concept, it's like Nakarlamafreya, that our sins have retroactively been removed. With this, we can do tshuva shlema and receive the finest brachos, both materially and spiritually, from heaven. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. Appreciate the uh, words for uh, for this time. And uh, we're going to be going back to Rabbi Wine momentarily. Uh, and uh, I will continue until the news from Israel, which will be at 8 o'clock in about... Uh, Oh, about 26 minutes from now. Uh, and uh, we're here till 9 o'clock. Great program. It continues all day long with uh, music for the appropriate time, programming for the appropriate time that we're in. And uh, Nachum should be back tomorrow morning to start the new week of JM in the AM, 6 AM Eastern Time tomorrow morning. So uh, we have that to look forward to. Uh once again, we are going to present Rabbi Beryl Wine, continuing his talk on the destruction of the first temple. In a uh, very perverse and uh, different fashion, uh, you have to understand that the destruction of the temple and the survival of the destruction of the temple was a triumph of the spirit of the Jewish people. that the Jewish people didn't walk away completely, uh, that, uh, they, that they looked at it the way they did look at it in terms of self-improvement and in terms of continuity and survival is a testimony to the great faith of the Jewish people and to their deep philosophic insight because on the surface, uh, lesser people would have been more than happy to write the whole thing off and forget it and which would have been the end of the Jewish people which if the rules of history were followed would undoubtedly that undoubtedly would have happened so that's the first point you know, we have to realize the uh, cosmic philosophic problem raised now we were dealing with a different god until now you know we always knew that you know that god meant it and god punished and god did this and god did that and you didn't trifle with god but we never dealt with a god that would burn his own building And our rabbis say it in their inimitable fashion. You have to listen to the words of the rabbis in the Talmud, not just what they say, but how they say it, the nuance. The Talmud in Brochus tells us that what does God say every day? What does God have to say about it? Which is always the question of the rabbis. Everything that happens in this earth 
So we know what the New York Times has to say about it, and we know what CBS News has to say about it, and we know what we have to say about it, and you know what the guys in the mikvah Friday afternoon have to say about it, and the guys Shabbos between the parshas, you know, we know what everybody has to say about it. But the ultimate question is, what does God have to say about it? What does he say about it? So the rabbi said that he said, Oy lebonim, woe to children, shebi avonoseim, that because of their sins, hechrafti as basi v'sarafti as hecholai, that I destroyed my own house and I burned down my own temple. So the rabbis did not avoid the issue. They met it head on. God destroyed his own temple. God burned down his own house. How can you make somebody do that? Well, that gives us an understanding of the power of sin. It gives us an understanding of the dimension of rebellion that exists within man. And the rabbis therefore compared it, uh, not in an unlikely fashion, but compared it to the destruction of the world at the time of the flood, of the Mabel, which was really the clue to God's, and is the clue to God's behavior. So there also, how did God, it says in the Torah, that God said, Nichamti, uh, the, the, the Torah expresses itself in such a term that God expressed himself that I'm sorry I created man and who needs the world and you know let it rain what do you mean let it rain I mean you I mean, you set the whole thing up that the world is so complicated it's so uh, the, the, the laws of physics of nature of ecology of biology of botany uh, it's just mind-boggling. What do you mean, let it rain? God said, let it rain. That's it. It's not worth it. Without man, it's not worth it. There's a purpose to the world. The purpose of the world is man. Without man, who cares? Well, that was a lesson. That's a lesson that's burned into the psyche of man. And now there's a lesson for the Jewish people. God doesn't need a temple. God doesn't care about his reputation, so to speak. And God doesn't care about his house or anything else. If the Jewish people behave in such a fashion that they are really not my people and they take me for granted and they take history for granted and they, they're not... They're not at all attuned to what's happening in the world, so then, you know, so who needs it? So then it's only sticks and stones and bricks and mortar. That's all destructible. So what? And that's a uh, profound, profound revelation to us. Not only that God could do it, he did it. Not only did he do it once, he did it twice. Not only did he do it twice, but in lesser ways, he's done it many times to us. That, that should give the Jewish people some pause. Because we, uh, you know, I always have this feeling, I don't mean to be political, even though I am, but you know, people say, uh, never again. What? We're not going to let it happen. Those are, you know, that's whistling past the graveyard. Because it's not up to us, never again. What guarantee? What, what if you, 
If you gave every Jew in the world an Uzi submachine gun, and I'm certain there are now enough Uzi submachine guns in circulation that you could do that, it wouldn't stop never again. We all know that deep down in our heart. And we know that man uh, can destroy himself and destroy the whole world. doesn't take much. In our time, it takes very little. It takes two, two fingers on two buttons and it's all over. But that's an, an awesome realization. To live in such a dangerous world, especially if one is a Jew, to live in such a dangerous world. But it is the Churban, more than anything else, that has impressed upon Jewish history and the Jewish mind that reality. And because the reality is so frightening, we always tend to ignore it. We always tend not to deal with it. I think that that's part of the uh, mystique, if I can use that word, regarding Tisha B'Av, is the fact that Tisha B'Av, it's not just a day of mourning, it's a day of such terrible reality that that's what causes the mourning. You know, the, uh, the famous Rebbe of Kotsk said that there really are no fast days on the Jewish calendar. He says the two fast days of Tisha B'Av and Yom HaKippurim, he said, Yom Kippur, who wants to eat? Everybody, it's, it's, you're such a spiritual person on that day, so who wants to eat? And Tisha B'Av, he said, who can eat? Right? If you realize what it is, you have no appetite. That's really what Tisha B'Av is. Tisha B'Av came, the Churban came to point out the, uh, what, you know, what the reality really is. And not what the uh, delusions that one can convince oneself of are. That's, that's, really not, not, that's really not productive for us. So that's one point. Another point is that... <clears throat> The rabbis saw that the Jewish people themselves caused the Churban. It's not a hard and fast rule in history that the Babylonians have to triumph over the kingdom of Judah. Now, uh, good old uh, Karl Marx and his buddies in the 19th century sold Western civilization amongst all the other garbage that they put upon us, the idea that there are rules of history, inflexible, inexorable rules of history, and that the individual under no circumstance can change those rules, and that we are just pawns. Now, if you think about it, that justifies, you know, with sending 50 million people to the gulag, and it justifies starving 100 million Chinese uh, because it's, uh, you know, it's the wave of the future. You can't stay in the way of progress. It's got to happen. And if it's got to happen, then, you know, I'm just helping it happen. I'm not doing it. It is uh, the, the idea of the Western world uh, in the last 150 years that there are historic forces that create these cataclysms and holocausts and disasters really acquits us of all responsibility. That's exactly what everybody you know, It's not my fault. Right? I only was taking orders. I'm only doing what history says. 
And that's what allows us to be such murderers. Because there is no individual guilt or responsibility. We are all acting under a force. Like the weather forecaster that predicts a tornado or a hurricane, he is not guilty when the tornado comes or the hurricane comes and kills innocent people. He, uh, you know, he's a scientist. He told you it was going to come. So, too, the nature of the view of history is that all of these things are inevitable. It has to happen. The big have to devour the small, the weak have to fall before the strong, and that there are forces in history and civilizations rise and fall, and that's it. And that, in effect, if we uh, follow the logic of Western civilization to its illogical conclusion, which a lot of people do, Western civilization is doomed. <coughs> the United States or the Western world generally is no different than Rome or the Holy Roman Empire or the English Empire or any other major power that has existed in the world. The most we can look forward to is being a second-rate country. That's if history will allow us to survive. But otherwise, we, we may even disappear. Wouldn't be the first time. And that, I think, goes also to explain part of the innate pessimism which exists in the Western world. The Western world is a very pessimistic place. If you have any doubts about it, just read the newspaper every day. It's just a very sad, pessimistic place. You know, now it's, it's a hot summer, so, you know, the, 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 so they all say that in 200 years the polar ice caps will melt and goodbye. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but, you know, the, 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 the trend of thought is always pessimistic. And that's built into us by this uh, feeling that the age of reason and enlightenment gave us. The Torah came to say the opposite. The Torah has a different view of history. History can be altered. History can be changed. It can be changed by one man. It can be changed by one act. It can be changed by one people. What happens is because we are the ones that caused it to happen. We are not guiltless observers uh, that are caught up in some great mob scene, which is called history. We are the participants. We are the players. We're the authors. We can do whatever we want. And therefore, the Churban Beis Amigdash, the destruction of the temple, occurred because of the behavior of the Jewish people. The Jewish people brought it among themselves. They could have prevented it. They could have prevented it even at the last minute. They could have prevented it. But they chose not to for whatever reasons. And our rabbis list as the three cardinal reasons for the destruction of the first temple, the three major sins of society, paganism, the lack of faith in God, the lack of, of any allegiance to, a, uh, to the higher authority, to the creator that has fashioned us. Paganism uh, need not be translated only in terms of idols. It's not just uh, Zeus and Apollo. You know, paganism uh, takes on many different forms in society. Wealth, greed, uh, all sorts of injustice, 
are all reflected in the ideas of paganism. Because we're not responsible to a God. And it, paganism also represents the fact that God is like man. And the Torah came to say that man was created in the image of God. So in all the mythologies of all the pagan religions in the world, from the eastern to the western to the northern religions, the gods behave like uh, men and like bad men, like spoiled, rich, bad men. They fight among themselves. They kill each other. They steal, they steal each other's wives. They, they, they do terrible things because the mythology has portrayed the God as man. And the Torah came to say that man has to make himself as God. God is merciful. You have to be merciful. God visits the sick. You have to visit the sick. You have to try and imitate God. The great concept of imitatio dei, of imitating the Creator. So that sin, that was a terrible sin, doomed to destroy the Jewish people. Then the second sin was Shvichas Domin, that it was a society that placed little value on human life which is another uh, horrendous view of, uh, of man, which in our time also, you know, human life, life is cheap. And we're inured to it. We become immune to even, the, I count, the, I knew I was going to lecture tonight, so, today, so in the two and a half minutes that I prepared, I listened to the, uh, to the news. So in the city of New York today, there were eight murders. Eight murders and five people uh, died on Sunday in a fire that was set that they think was that was arson. Yeah, so yeah, nothing. I'm I'm waiting to hear the baseball score. This guy's telling me about eight guys who got you. One of us hired mirror, you know. Why is it my business? Because we're immune to it. We are absolutely immune to it. Human life, and if that's true by us in the Western world, where we uh, at least. Uh, pride ourselves on some sort of civilization. In other societies, it is far worse. I once read a statistic in a National Geographic magazine that in Calcutta, India, there are 300 people that die every night in the streets. And if you multiply that by 365 days, my math is not good, but it's a big, big number. And you know, that's it. That's the way it is. And the acceptance of that type of situation, acceptance of, uh, we, they just finished, uh, I don't know if they finished, but uh, they're taking a breather in the Iraq-Iran war, right? million people killed in eight years. Yeah, my. And this, uh, this, uh, Madman that's running Iran, so he says it's the most bitter pill of his life that he has to stop the killing. Like to keep it going further. Why? Because that's that's because human life doesn't mean anything. Causes mean more. Everything means more. In the Torah, nothing means more than human life. And the instances when human life can be taken are very limited. 
and have to meet certain very exacting standards. And uh, because of that, therefore, when human life is taken very easily, so then, uh, again, is a reflection on society. And finally, our rabbi say the third sin was that of sexual immorality, which, again, is the... <coughs> the loss of understanding of the role of people in the world and of the role of the human body and of the necessity to uh, appreciate the grandeur of the person instead of the instead of making out of the person a, what, a little more than an animal so when they had that those three things together and they had it together for a long time it isn't that it just happened and those were the ills of society about which the prophets complained over and over again and the Jewish people turned a deaf ear. So then uh, the Chorban was inevitable. Not because it was inevitable due to historic forces that were at work. It was inevitable because of the behavior of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people can and did do something about it. At least in those matters, there was some improvement. In the Second Temple, for instance, paganism was not as popular, and murder wasn't as popular, and even immorality, which is the most popular of all, was not as popular. They did do something about it. The famous statement from Ralph Cook uh, that the British... Uh, the British... Uh, Governor General, or High Commissioner Lord Stars, said to him that uh, he uh, he doesn't see any improvement in civilization over uh, the thousands of years. So uh, the uh, British uh, general had an office that overlooked the Valley of Gehinom, the Valley of Hinnom outside the walls of Jerusalem. And Rabbi Cook pointed out to him, he said, you see in that valley, he said... Uh, uh, 26, 2700 years ago, my ancestors took children and burned them to the idols. Took their own children and burned them to the idols. He says, that we don't do anymore. So there is some improvement. It may have taken us 2700 years, but at least with that lesson we learned. And the uh, idea, therefore, that man himself could do something to improve himself, has to do something, but the Churban made that real. The destruction of the temple made that real. Another idea about the destruction of the temple, which is, <coughs> excuse me, again, part of this idea, is that a change in nature occurred after the destruction of the temple. Just as a change in nature, according to many of the commentators, the Ramban and others, occurred after the Mabel. The Ramban says uh, in the Chumash we see that man became carnivorous, animals became carnivorous after the Mabel. The nature of human beings changed. The nature of nature changed. Well, after the Beis Amigdash also, Chazal say, for instance, that the blue sky was taken away. There is no blue sky anymore after the Churban Beis Amigdash. Can't see really the blue sky anymore. The rabbi say very strongly that uh, certain pleasures in life, including physical pleasures in life, 
uh, marital relations, etc. The rabbis say that from the Churban Beis Amigdash on, that was taken away. The enjoyment of it was taken away. It became uh, less enjoyable, more mechanical. And the rabbis in their wisdom said that the only ones who retain the joy of it are those that do it illicitly. But it was taken away. It doesn't exist anymore. The rabbis tell us that certain tastes in fruit and vegetables, and that's before they managed to have the tomatoes taste like the cartons that they come in. But... Just doesn't the taste was taken away? The world changed. That was the message. The churban, therefore, was not just a churban for the Jewish people. The world changed. God, so to speak, withdrew. And that's how the rabbi saw it. Previously, God had a house and he lived there, so to speak. Right? If uh, it will take a bad example, but uh, something that perhaps will give us some focus on the matter. Let's say you live on a block, and on that block lives a, a great, wealthy man, a very powerful man. So the block is a, it's a different kind of block. First of all, you know, they, they plow the street first in the snow, and the garbage guys always come, and, the, uh, and everybody takes care of their lawn because there's such a nice lawn next to it. You live in Tobacco Road, right? Everybody's a slob, so after a while it gets to you too. Well, let's, uh, again, as a bad example, but that's how the rabbi saw it. You know, their bonus and God was in the neighborhood, right? He lived there. He lived in Jerusalem. He lived in Eretz Israel. He lived amongst the Jewish people. He lived in the world. So if he lived in the world, so it was a different world. It had to be a different world. A world where you could uh, every day see a physical manifestation, Kaviochal, of God's presence. And now God withdrew. God, they moved out of the house. Wrecked the house, left. So the block is not the same. And it's never going to be the same. Until and unless, you know, you're able to rebuild that situation. Now, rabbis therefore said that the second temple never equaled the first temple. The same feeling never came back. <coughs> the, uh, the program, The Destruction of the First Temple, presented by uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine. Um, thank you very much. We're going to get to the news from Israel in uh, just a moment. And then following the news from Israel, we will hear Rabbi Wine discussing the destruction of the second temple. Um, and uh, as we're in the nine days format, this is what we are uh, presenting today. Next week is Tish above. We will have other uh, lectures by Rabbi Wine, and uh, we will be here on JM and the AM. A JM Sunday, excuse me. I say JM and the AM because I was about to uh, uh, remember uh, that this past Friday uh, I was on subbing for Nachum, uh, although he joined me a couple of times on the... Uh, on the air, and uh, we wished a tremendous amount of stuff. We still do, of course, to uh, Kayla and Benjamin Siegel on the birth of Esther Liel on uh, on Thursday, and we wish Mazel Tov to uh, Nachum and Stacy Siegel, and Naomi and Stephen Levinson, both first-time grandparents, on the uh, wonderful uh, news of the birth of a baby girl. Uh, so 
That was on uh, on Friday, and we continue that. Nachum, I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about tomorrow morning on JM uh, in the AM. wanted to give a shout-out to those that are attending Yad Vashem's uh, seminar this week and last week for Jewish educators in uh, for educators in Jewish supplemental schools taking place at Yad Vashem, a very intensive and intense program. My wife Karen is on that, and uh, thank everyone for... Uh, for putting together that program. Um, the director, the head of the Jewish World section is Rabbi Moshe Kohn, and uh, it seems from what I hear to be a very tremendous program. Anyone interested, uh, educators interested in looking towards next year's program should uh, go to the Yad Vashem website and, uh, and find information there when the time comes. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to give a shout-out to everyone, and thank you for taking the time to learn about such an important event and be able to teach it to other people so we don't forget. At this time, a little bit late, uh, this time on Sunday mornings, we uh, present our news from Israel, Hannah Julian, Middle East news analyst and senior and senior correspondent at jewishpress.com joins us on Sunday mornings to bring us up to date on the latest happenings in the state of Israel. Good morning, Anna Julian. Good morning, Matis. Thousands of Israelis streamed into Jerusalem this morning for the funeral of the chief rabbi of the Eda HaHaredit, Rabbi Yitzhak Tuvia Weiss. Police recommended local drivers use navigation apps for updates on the traffic situation because traffic was snarled. The rabbi passed away early yesterday morning at Hadassah in Karim Medical Center in Jerusalem after suffering a severe infection several weeks ago. Rabbi Weiss was 95 years old. He was laid to rest at the Mount of Olives Cemetery. Baruch. The commander of the Israeli Air Force has ordered comprehensive inspections for the entire fleet of F-35 stealth fighter jets. Major General Tomir Barr issued the order Saturday night after receiving a report from the United States saying that a problem was found with the aircraft's ejector mechanism. The commander said the Adir F-35 aircraft will continue to operate during the inspection period with approval on a case-by-case basis. The U.S. Air Force has grounded its entire F-35's fleet over the issue. The Air Force said Friday there's a problem with the cartridges used to trigger the ejection of a pilot's seat in the event of an emergency. The IDF, Israel Border Guard Police, and Shin Bet agents carried out counterterrorism operations last night in Judea and Samaria. Forces operated in the towns of Shukba, Beit Deko, and in Beit Fajar, among others. Six terrorist suspects were arrested in the operation. All of the, all of the suspects were transferred to security personnel for further questioning. Israeli forces returned to base safely. U.S. Energy Envoy Amos Hochstein is expected to arrive today in Lebanon for more talks on the country's maritime boundary dispute with Israel. Hochstein is expected to bring a draft proposal for a resolution to the dispute. Lebanon contends that part of Israel's offshore Karish gas field falls within its sovereign maritime territory. The U.S. says that it's both necessary and possible to reach a resolution to the dispute, but 
but that can only be done through negotiation and diplomacy. Lebanon's Iranian proxy, the Hezbollah terrorist organization, has vowed to launch a war with Israel if gas and oil extraction begins at Karish before reaching a deal with Lebanon. And on the good news front, archaeologists have begun digging at Herbet Tibna in Samaria. That's the site where it's believed Yoshua lived and was buried. That's the biblical Joshua. The dig is being led by Dr. Devir Raviv and students from Barilan University, along with volunteers from here in Israel and those from abroad. A quick look now at the weather. It's pretty hot for a dig, but uh, great weather for a picnic in the shade. Clear skies, lots of sunshine today with highs in the high 80s. Lows tonight in the high 70s. And that is what our weather looks like all week long this week. Make sure to carry your water bottles and drink often. Have a great week, everyone, and have an easy fast next weekend on Tisha B'Av. Stay safe and stay healthy. I'm Hannah Julian for JM Sunday. That's our news from Israel. Thanks, Hannah Julian. Uh, perhaps we'll see you next week uh, right here on JM Sunday uh, if uh, if you're up to it. Uh, and uh, we are here exclusively on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're going to continue with uh, with a program by Rabbi Wine. This is the destruction of the Second Temple. The destruction of the temple and the uh, subsequent destruction of the national entity of the Jewish people occurs, as I pointed out to you last week, uh, in a significant fashion because of the warfare amongst the Jews themselves. The warring groups in Yerushalayim destroyed all hope of victory. And the fact that they burned all of their supplies, their grain, only uh, facilitated the uh, coming destruction, the victory of the Romans. In the midst of all of this uh, carnage and quarrelsome, bloody civil war between the Jews. The leadership of the Jewish people passed on a permanent basis from the hands of political leaders to the hands of religious leaders. And the main religious leader at the time of the destruction of the temple was the famous Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, whom I discussed with you last week, who was yet a uh, Talmud, a disciple of the great Hillel. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai for 40 years was a businessman, for 40 years he studied Torah, for 40 years he led the Jewish people, he led the Sanhedrin. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, uh, served together with Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel was the Nasi at the beginning of this great civil war. But Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel disappears in the war. We don't know exactly what happened to him. Uh, most uh, 
authorities say that he died during the war. It's not clear whether he died of natural causes or he died because of the war. But Rav Shimon ben Gamliel, uh, to a certain extent, abdicated his powers of being the Nasi to Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai. We find in documents of the times that Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai signed together on the documents with Rav Shimon ben Gamliel. And Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was not a descendant of Hillel, uh, was certainly the most influential religious leader of the time. The Talmud tells us, the famous story in the uh, Gemara Gitan, the Talmud tells us that when Jerusalem was under siege, there, were, uh, there was an agreement between the uh, zealots and between the Romans that every night the dead would be allowed to be taken out of the walls of the city to be buried. And that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had himself uh, placed in a coffin and taken from the city in order that he should uh, be able to cross the lines and come to the Roman general Vespasia. The Talmud tells us that the uh, Jewish guard suspecting a trick uh, actually stabbed the coffin ran a sword through the coffin to make certain that it was a corpse there. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai miraculously survived, and he came before the emperor Vespasian, and he uh, greeted uh, Vespasian, the general, and informed him that Vespasian was going to be the emperor of Rome. Now, this was because of the fact that after the death of Nero, the uh, Roman uh, situation fell into chaos. There were different competitors, as you can imagine, for the leadership of the empire. And in fact, in one year, in the year 69, there were four different people who occupied the throne, the imperial throne of Rome. And in the midst of this chaos and instability, it became obvious that a strong hand was needed. The Roman Senate turned to Vespasian, who was the leading general of Rome, and Vespasian uh, ruthlessly uh, disposed of his competitors by uh, refusing to allow any of the grain ships from Syria, Egypt, uh, and North Africa to sail to Rome, thereby starving Rome itself and starving Rome into submission. And the, the, because of that act, the Senate recognized his, uh, that that was the man they were looking for. He was uh, ruthless enough to meet their tastes. And they sent him a messenger that he was elected the emperor of Rome. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, through uh, the hand of God, naturally, uh, beat the messenger there by a few hours. And he informed uh, Vespasian that he was elected the emperor of Rome. Uh, Vespasian originally planned to execute Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, but when the messenger arrived that he was elected the emperor of Rome, the custom in the ancient world 
was that the bearer of good tidings was rewarded, the bearer of evil tidings was punished. And uh, therefore, in his elation over the fact that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had been the one that told him that he was elected the emperor, he rewarded him by granting him three wishes. Now, we have two conflicting versions as to what the original three wishes were. The uh, Babylonian Talmud tells us that the uh, Jewish rabbi asked the Roman emperor for a that the family of Ram Gamliel, Ram Shimon Gamliel, the family of Hillel, be spared, because the Roman custom was uh, when countries were conquered that the royal family or the leading families were taken to Rome and executed. So he asked that he uh, spare the family of the Nossi. The second wish was very uh, interesting to see what he asked of him. The second uh, wish rega was regarding the uh, great rabbi, Rabbi Tzodok, who was one of the famous holy men of the era and who was aware of the coming of the destruction of the temple and, according to the Talmud, uh, fasted on a regular basis for 40 years. And because of that, Naturally, he was very ill. He suffered from uh, physical illnesses, and so he asked for medical attention for Abitzodok, that the Romans would provide the necessary medical attention. And then the third wish, the third wish was the famous statement, Tainli Yavne V'chachomeho. Let me have the, fa the academy, the yeshiva at Yavne, and its wise men spare the Talmud Chachamim. We will move the Sanhedrin, we'll move the yeshivas out of Yerushalayim, and we'll move the Avna, and uh, we won't, uh, we will not mix in any political or military matters. Those are the three wishes according to the Bavli. The question arises: uh, Why didn't he ask for something grander? Why didn't he ask that the temple be spared or that Jerusalem be spared? So the, the Bavli is of the opinion that he knew in advance that such a wish would not be granted because that would destroy the whole uh, purpose of the campaign of Vespasian. And he knew it was not within his nature to grant such a wish, and therefore he didn't want to waste it. Uh, the Yerushalmi seems to indicate, the Jerusalem Talmud seems to indicate that he did ask him, and he was refused. He asked him to, that, to spare Jerusalem, to spare the temple, and that the Roman refused it, but granted him three other wishes. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the Roman general Vespasian was thrilled because he thought that this old Jew really didn't know what to ask for. Right? He could have asked for Florida. He, he could have gotten something out of it, and here he wasted his opportunity on what are essentially meaningless uh, achievements. 
but the Roman did not realize that he was being had and that the victory of Rome would be nullified because of the fact that the family of Hillel would live yet and would provide spiritual leadership for the Jewish people and thereby guarantee that their way of life would continue uh, by keeping Rabbi Tzodok alive. So the power of one righteous man to influence and protect the generation is enormous, and by allowing the yeshivas to rebuild themselves at Yavne, that was the key to Jewish survival throughout the ages. And the, uh, the emperor Vespasian thought he was giving him nothing, in reality he was giving him everything. And that became the, uh, the, uh, the uh, refuge of the Jewish people, how they would survive the awful blow of the destruction of their nation, of their government, of their uh, temple, a complete change in the uh, Jewish world, a tremendous adjustment, all was made possible because of the fact that they still had their religious leadership intact and also that they had their uh, religious infrastructure through Yavne was still functioning and would grow strong and would certainly outlast Rome as it has outlasted uh, all other uh, civilizations and tyrants in the history of the world. In any event, Vespasian granted the wish and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai journeyed to Yavne where he established his academy, where he established this uh, great school and uh, clandestinely, the Talmidei Chachomim from all over Eretz Israel came to Yavne. That became the center of learning, became the center of the uh, of Jewish existence. Our rabbis call Yavne Kerem B'Yavne. Kishenichnesu Raboseinu L'Kerem B'Yavne. When our forefathers entered the vineyard at Yavne. So the Talmud explains that it was called a vineyard because of the fact that they sat in semicircular rows, uh, which uh, resemble the way uh, a vineyard is plowed and planted. It's not straight, but it's semicircular in order to allow the grapes to get the angle of the sun, etc. So that's why it was called Kerem. However, the other, uh, the other uh, meaning of Kerem that, that is also apparent here is that was the vineyard of God. It was the vineyard of the Lord, and that's why they called it Kerem B'Avne. And from it, they uh, fully expected and they were successful in rebuilding the Jewish people. As you all know, there's a yeshiva today, and yet the current, uh, the current uh, kibbutz at Yavne is next to the Arab village of Yibne. And the Arab village of Yibne is on the archaeological site, is on the ruins of the ancient city of Yavne. And therefore the yeshiva that was established outside of the kibbutz naturally took for itself the name uh, Kerem B'Yavne. As I mentioned to you, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, who was the Nasi, died in the, re in the rebellion. And his son, Rabban Gamliel II, 
or as he is known, Ram Gamliel of Yavne, should have become the Nasi. However, for a, uh, a major period of time, about 20 years, he remained in hiding. Because even though the Romans had guaranteed, Vespasian had guaranteed that he was not going to execute the members of the royal family, the members of the House of Hillel, they uh, didn't quite take him at face value. They were frightened, and therefore they remained in hiding. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai remained as not only the titular head, but the actual power of the Sanhedrin and of the Jewish people. And we find in the Mishnah and in the Talmud that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, was very instrumental, was the most instrumental person in forming the Jewish nation during the time of the destruction and afterwards. I will give you in a few moments, uh, God willing, a number of examples of Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai and his, uh, his outlook, uh, an enormously talented person uh, and a, uh, a person that was able uh, through his personality to rally the Jewish people at its, at it, literally at its darkest moment in history. Now, Vespasian left for Rome. When he left for Rome, he left the army in charge of his son Titus, Titus. Now, what happened now is that three Jews uh, were advisors to Titus in the siege of Yerushalayim. One was Josephus Flavius, whom I mentioned to you last time, Yosef ben Matityahu Akoin, who uh, in his uh, history book, The War of the Jews, uh, goes out of his way to point out that Titus was not such a bad fellow. And because of that, uh, that undoubtedly strengthened the opinion of the Jews that Josephus was a traitor. Josephus is a very, very complex person because he's a real Jew. I mean, there were Jews that that escaped to Rome and became Romans, and they 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 uh, chucked all their Judaism. That was not the case with Josephus. Josephus remained a uh, an observant person, observant of the mitzvahs. And he saw himself as the defender of the Jewish community against uh, the attacks of the non-Jewish community in the Roman Empire. And he saw himself as a hero and not as a traitor. In other words, he maintains that things would have been far worse if it would not have been for him. And that he had influence with Titus. Uh, he even writes in his uh, book that Titus did not want to burn down the temple and that the burning of the temple was an accident. We'll discuss that also in a few moments. But uh, he really is an apologist for Titus. So he was in the camp of the Romans. Agrippa II, the last king, who was allegedly the king of the Jews, and whose militia was part of the original rebellion, switched sides in the middle, and became an advisor to Titus. 
which you can imagine was certainly viewed as an act of treachery. And Agrippus uh, was later, Agrippa was later brought to Rome and rewarded, and he marched in the triumph, but he and his family completely disappear from the scene. They are just outside the Jewish people. That's the end of Herod. Herod and his family out. And the third man was a man, Tiberius Alexander, who came from the city of Alexandria, who was a Jew who gave up his Judaism and converted to Roman paganism, and who had the effrontery uh, in the year of the four Caesars to uh, proclaim himself as the emperor of Rome. It's a little like uh, Barry Goldwater's joke. When he ran for president, Goldwater said that if he wins, he'll be the first Jew that ever became president of the United States, and he's an Episcopalian. <laughs> so here you would have a, a Jewish emperor of Rome who was a pagan. These three were the main counselors of Titus during the siege. And their counsel, their counsel was very correct. Their counsel was that the Romans need not knock themselves out, let the Jews kill themselves out. The Jews are going to do such a good job on themselves that the Romans will only come in and pick up the pieces, which is practically what happened. Now, Rome used the siege of Jerusalem to test new war machinery. It's not unlike... Middle East wars that we have unfortunately seen in our time that have been proving grounds for major new weapon systems of the superpowers. Except that then the uh, Romans had perfected their siege machines, the battering rams, the catapults, the Roman towers in which they filled up the tower with as many as a thousand soldiers and were able to pull it to the wall. And the Romans, Titus was interested, as all generals are interested, not so much in, in the cost in terms of men, he was interested in the, in the technology and how it would work. And therefore, uh, late in the year 69, he uh, brought uh, the battering rams and siege towers to the walls, and they destroyed the outside wall, then they destroyed the second wall. And then he laid siege to the city in such a way that the hunger and pestilence uh, just raged throughout the city. While this was happening, the Jewish generals inside the city were still fighting with themselves, slaughtering each other. And then finally the Romans tightened the siege and continued to tighten the siege, and in the uh, spring of the year 70, they were at the last wall, and the wall was breached in Tammuz of the year 70. The Romans fought their way through the city. The uh, defense was fierce. It was absolute. It was suicide squads, kamikaze. The Romans suffered enormous casualties and uh, in hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the cities, and the Roman policy was to destroy all the homes, to level everything. 
and therefore the city was being destroyed as the Roman army marched closer and closer to the temple. And eventually the Romans achieved the uh, breakthrough. They were able to surround the fortress of Antonius, which guarded the temple, and they were able to come to the temple walls themselves. Josephus, in his book, uh, states the fact that Titus, apparently through the Jews, was well aware of the significance of the ninth day of Ov, that that historically was the day of the destruction of the temple, and therefore he held back the final uh, assault till that day, till the afternoon of the ninth day of Ov, when the walls to the temple were breached. And according to Josephus, there was a, uh, that, uh, that Titus had given orders not to burn the temple. Now, the temple was a fireproof building. The temple was built out of marble, out of stone. It was a fireproof building. There was very little in it that could burn. Our rabbi saw the burning of the temple as a miraculous uh, type of occurrence. And they said that, the, uh, that God vented his wrath, so to speak, on the stones and on the bricks rather than on the people. The temple, the physical destruction of the temple uh, served to uh, save the people from a destruction which otherwise they would have been uh, apparently guilty and uh, it would have happened to them. Uh, Josephus says that there, was, there were tremendous tapestries, uh, beautiful tapestries that Herod had made for the temple and that hung along the walls of the temple. And that these tapestries, there was a Roman soldier who took a torch and threw it against the tapestries. And that the tapestries caught fire. And when they caught fire, according to Josephus, the Romans attempted to put out the fire. They brought the bucket brigades with water, but because of the siege, there was not sufficient water that could be brought to the Temple Mount. And that somehow the building took the, the fire was so intense that, the, the, that even the stone and the marble took hold and that the building collapsed. He says that it, in the Talmud we have that also, that it burned not only the night, the, the late afternoon of the 9th and the night of the 10th, but it burned the entire day of the 10th also. It was just a raging conflagration that, that they were unable to stem. In fact, in the Talmud, we have the opinion that there was an opinion that perhaps uh, the day of the destruction should be remembered as the tenth day of Av and not the ninth day of Av, because the building was actually destroyed on the tenth. I mean, the major conflagration was on the tenth. However, since it started on the ninth, and because of the connection with the destruction of the first temple, so the ninth remained and remains the uh, the memorial day, the fast day for the Jewish people for the destruction of both temples. But they were unable to put out the fire. And the entire temple burned. According to Josephus, thousands of Jews burned with it. And that many of the defenders committed suicide, jumped into the flames of the temple, feeling that if the temple was going, the Jewish people were going. That it was all over anyway. 
and therefore they wanted to die with the temple. We will see that there was a a large uh, movement, literally, of suicide. The, des the desperation and the despair was of such great uh, uh, emphasis among the Jewish people. It existed so strongly that you have thousands and thousands of Jews committing suicide, which is, uh, relatively speaking, not a Jewish response to trouble. Mostly the zealots. The Prushim, got, the Prushim intended to live to another day. The Prushim followed Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's uh, lead, and they were, even though they were uh, devastated by the destruction of the temple, they were not willing to write uh, the end of the Jewish people. We'll see that this is what happens at Matsada, that the uh, last defenders, the almost 1,000 people, men, women, and children, uh, kill themselves rather than fall into Roman captivity. The Prussian were willing to undergo the Roman yoke because they felt that they would they would be able to see to it that the Jewish people survived. But the defenders, the zealots, the Sikrik in the army, the militia, and the Kohanim, many of the Kohanim, they were completely destroyed by the destruction of the temple and they died with the temple. The only uh, piece of the temple that we have left, of the entire temple compound that we have left, is the uh, fragment of the western wall uh, that uh, was the wall to the uh, outer courtyard, to the, to the temple area, to the temple mount itself. With the destruction of the temple, with the destruction of the temple, the Romans continued to uh, mount a, a war of extermination against the Jews, to uproot them from wherever they were. And the, uh, they uh, moved south and conquered the fortress of Herodian, which still was in Jewish hands. There was one other Jewish fortress in Transjordan, which the Romans crossed and destroyed. Yes. And then the final last place that was controlled by the Jews was the fortress of Masada. And the fortress of Masada was commanded by Elazar ben Yair, one of the leaders of the Sikrikun. Now the other two leaders, Shimon bar Giora and Yochanan Gush Chalav, were captured by Titus. And Titus will bring them together with the relics of the temple, etc. He'll bring them to Rome. And they will uh, participate in the triumph, uh, marching in chains, being dragged through the streets of Rome. And then Shimon bar Giora will be killed, executed publicly in the Colosseum. And Yochanan Gushkalav uh, was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in hard labor. He also died a few years later in the Roman dungeons. But Elazar ben Yair escaped from Jerusalem and together with about a thousand people uh, escaped to Matsada. And there, uh, there he was uh, surrounded by Roman forces and a three-year siege ensued. If you've been to Matsada, you can see the remnants of the great Roman ramp that was built up the sheer face of the cliff. 
the Romans used Jewish slaves, 30,000 Jewish slaves to build that ramp so that they put the defenders in the awful uh, dilemma of uh, in order to stop the ramp, they had to kill their own brethren. And the, uh, the situation... Uh, the situation deteriorated until finally in 73 the ramp was almost complete. It was obvious that the Romans would assault and win. Elazar ben Yair, in the famous story again is recorded in Josephus, uh, called a meeting of everybody on Matsada and said, we are not going to be slaves to Rome. If we cannot be freed, then we're going to commit suicide. And that's what they did. They killed everyone on Matsada. When the Romans came in the morning, they found only corpses. Now, in, uh, in uh, I don't know how to put it, but it, somet- somehow the Matsada complex is represented as being very heroic. It sounds dramatic and it has a great deal of heroism to it, but the... Uh, the traditional Jewish viewpoint and the, and the viewpoint of the rabbis of the times was that it was a very bad pun, but it was dead wrong. It was just not the way to handle it. And it was a useless, uh, futile act that was destructive instead of really strengthening anything. And uh, it's only... Uh, in our time, lately, that the Matsada became uh, popular again uh, with such statements as Matsada will not fall again and, and statements, uh, bravado statements, which again appeal to the uh, dramatic and heroic part of the story, but really in history are not, are not accurate and they are not, uh, and they're not very reassuring even. Now, Titus collected, we have all of this again from Josephus. Titus, after the fall of Rome, and his father was the emperor, so they decided to have a triumph. One of the, this was one of the greatest Roman parades, triumphs in the history of Rome. And uh, according to Josephus, they brought over 10,000 Jewish prisoners back with them. I mentioned they brought the two generals, Shimon Bargiora and Yochanan Gushchalav, and he also took the artifacts of the temple. Now, the second temple, as we know, did not have the ark, but he took the table, he took the menorah, and he took other golden and silver and all of the whatever he, whatever could be taken. And he... Uh, marched it in a tremendous parade and a tremendous triumph in the main square of Rome. And the Romans felt that this victory over the Jews was their major victory. You have to remember that even though the Jews were a small people and even though the country was a small country, it was the bitterest war that Rome had to fight. And it was the war that cost Rome the greatest proportion of casualties and therefore the victory over the Jews was celebrated as a tremendous military accomplishment. Titus succeeds his father as the emperor. His father does not live very long. By the year 73, 74, 
Titus as the emperor, and Titus built for himself a monument to the victory over the Jews, the Arch of Titus. It is a three-tiered gate that was the entrance at the entrance to the Roman Forum. The Arch of Titus still stands until today. One of the it's uh, it's no accident in history that both the Western Wall and the Arch of Titus have survived these uh, 1,900 years in spite of all of the Rome has been sacked a dozen times in between, and Jerusalem has, uh, has seen its share of destruction since, and that these two monuments of stone, so to speak, uh, remain and, uh, for viewing today. On the top of the Arch of Titus, you have the famous uh, sculpture, relief work, boss relief work, which shows uh, the Jews being taken into captivity, the picture of the menorah, the picture of the shofros of the long trumpets, of the chatzotzros, and the, uh, the entire scene of uh, Titus attempted to portray for us the scene how it, as it looked uh, on the day of the parade in Rome. What happened to all of the things? That's a good question. Uh, the Talmud tells us that uh, 40, 50 years later, meaning uh, about 70 years after the destruction of the temple, Rabbi Yossi said that he was in Rome and that he saw yet displayed the great parochus, the great curtain, which separated between the, in the, in the uh, building of the temple, the actual building, so it's separated between the Holy of Holies and the, and the building itself. So there was this enormous uh, curtain tapestry that hung. He said he saw it in Rome. And uh, apparently the Romans kept it as a, uh, as they kept many of the artifacts, as booty and on display, etc. When Rome was taken over by the Christians, as will happen in, the, in about the year 330, 250 years afterwards, so the uh, Catholic Church fell heir to all of these possessions of the temple. Now, where they are and what happened to them it's not clear. Uh, they could have all been destroyed when Rome was sacked. They could have all been lost in the Dark Ages. There is a tradition both among the Catholic Church and among Jews that somewhere in the catacombs in the basements of the Vatican the, there are artifacts of the temple which still exist. As late as the 18th century uh, there was a Jew by the name of the Chidor, Rabbi Nechaim Yosef David Azulai, who was a, uh, he was a fundraiser sent from Jerusalem to collect money. But like many fundraisers, he, uh, he didn't go for the work. So he, uh, he went and visited libraries all over the world. 
And he's a tremendous Talmud Chochem and a scholar. We have almost 70 books that he wrote while he was raising money. Some fundraisers write receipts. He wrote books. And one of the places that he was, that he he was in Rome, and he went, somehow he got into the Vatican. He was able to visit the Vatican, and he said that he was assured that there are artifacts of the temple that still exist, that the Vatican still has them. Our problem with the Vatican, as was symbolized this week in the meeting between Prime Minister Paris and the, and the Holy Father, is that uh, our... Uh, what is good for one is inimical to the other. We do not have, as the Vatican so euphemistically phrased it, an identity of interests. And because of that, uh, therefore, the Vatican is not in any uh, mood to share information regarding any of these uh, items. It may also be the Vatican has such a vast storehouse of manuscripts, artifacts, etc., that they've collected all over the centuries that they really don't know what they have. Because my theory of life is that the world is one big yeshiva. And, uh, you know, when you'll do your Pesach cleaning, you'll be amazed what you have. That now uh, doesn't even enter into your mind. And there are a lot of things that they simply don't know what they have. Uh, Since until the Second World War, until after the Second World War, for instance, the Vatican Library is the largest repository of Jewish manuscripts in the world, having been confiscated from Catholic countries over the entire uh, 15 centuries of Catholic rule. So uh, many, of the, uh, many of the great works and manuscripts of, uh, of Jewish scholarship are not in our possession, but they are in their possession. Uh, it, before the Second World War, Jews had almost no access to them whatsoever. And if you had access to them, it meant that you had to come and sit in the library and copy it over, which is a matter of years, and you have to have a very good back and a few other things to be able to do it. It effectively prevented any Jewish scholarship. What has happened since the Second World War is that the Vatican now does allow microfilms. They will microfilm a manuscript for you and send it to you. And uh, in our time, in the last 35 years, 40 years, uh, more uh, ancient manuscripts have been published than in all of the years until our time. And the, uh, for instance, the entire, uh, we knew that there was a sefer called the Beis Abchira, written by Rabbeinu Menachem Hamiri, who was a French Jew who lived in Pepragon on the border of Spain in the Pyrenees in the 1300s. We knew it. It was quoted by everyone. Until 1850, we never even saw any of the books. Beginning in 1850, manuscripts were found in Catholic cathedrals in Padua, in Parma, in other cities in Italy. But the main texts lay in the Vatican Library. 
But after the Second World War, the uh, Israeli government rec uh, requested the uh, manuscripts, the microfilms, and the church did devote a number of years to find the manuscripts, microfilm them. They were shipped to, to Israel and uh, numerous scholarly organizations, uh, Yad Rav Herzog, the Encyclopedia Talmudis, uh, the Hebrew University, other other institutions uh, have published so that we have a complete set of the Miri now. For, for, for 700 years he lay... Uh, it lay underground, and uh, now that we have it, we don't know how we got along without it because it's that invaluable. Yeah. So what happened to the artifacts is very hard to say. What what's down there, we really don't know. That it was there, that it was taken from from Palestine, from Israel, and brought to Rome, that we do know. And that it and that at one point in history it fell to the uh, inheritance to the Catholic Church that we do know also. But what has happened since then, we don't know, and it could very well be that they don't know either. All right, now, in the, uh, in the situation in Israel, after the destruction of the temple, the uh, Jewish people, uh, as you can imagine, were in a state of shock and despair. There was a very strong effort now by the early Christians, by the early Jewish Christians, to gain control of the Jewish people. And they uh, said openly that the destruction of the temple was a direct result of the rejection of Christianity by the Jews and that the destruction of the temple therefore proved that the old was gone, the Old Testament and the old uh, requirements, the old revelation, that was all canceled now because the temple was destroyed and the new, meaning Christianity, was now to take hold. The Christians had almost no success with the Jews. The early Christians had almost no success with the Jews, aside from the point that I mentioned to you of, uh, of the special brocha that was inserted in Shemona Esra to exclude the Christians. They uh, did not strike a responsive chord among the Jewish people. And by the end of this uh, century, the uh, Christian church would become almost exclusively a non-Jewish religion. And uh, not only a non-Jewish religion, it would turn into uh, eventually an anti-Jewish. Uh, it would uh, it would have a great deal of bitterness to the Jewish people. However, there arose, and they had existed before, a certain pacifist group who now felt vindicated by the fact that the temple had been destroyed and that the uh, Jewish army had been crushed by the Romans, there's always an that exists after any problem. And everyone is gifted with hindsight, and everyone knows what they should not have done. This group was basically composed of the Isim, of the Essenes, whom I discussed with you, uh, and they uh, therefore said that the Jewish people 
should now revert into a peaceful agricultural people, a pure and holy people, and move out into the caves, into communes, etc. This also did not prove very popular with the Jewish people. The Dead Sea Scrolls that we have found, the uh, community that existed in Qumran, uh, which is uh, the area of the Judean desert, is a localized sect, probably not more than two or three thousand people at its height. And uh, they, uh, their reaction to what happened was one of extreme pacifism. And therefore, what they did, to, and it's not uh, unusual, they distorted Jewish writings to reflect their attitude. You know that if you want to prove something from the Torah, you can prove anything. You can prove that the Torah is socialist, communist, capitalist. It's for the working man, it's against the working, whatever you want. If you take things out of context and you interpret them as you wish to interpret them. If you take the Torah as an entity, the way Chazal did, the way uh, the Talmud deals with it, so then the entire pattern and the values of Jewish life appear. But if you take one part out, so then you have a distortion. And they distorted it. They took all the peaceful parts out. They took all the parts that supported their ideas of human behavior and of national life. And uh, because of the fact, as I mentioned to you, that they one of the uh, hallmarks of their society was that they were celibate. They did not marry. So they could never replace themselves. And they were dependent completely upon persuasion and conversion from the outside, which did not prove popular. Now, you have to, just to show you how tough the Jewish people were and are, you have to remember and keep in the back of your mind that the Jewish people are going to rebel against Rome within the next 60 years and are almost going to win that rebellion. So that the mood of the people, in spite of being crushed, was not one of pacifism. The mood was to survive and to see what happens. The, uh, out of the 10,000 Jews that were brought to Rome, almost all were sold into slavery. Again, we know these things from, only from Josephus, but uh, we can imagine them to be correct. Josephus writes that the uh, slave markets, they depressed the price of slaves throughout the Roman Empire. Because there were, uh, there were literally hundreds of thousands of Jews available to be slaves, and Jews were good slaves. And therefore, the, uh, the, uh, he says people lost the fortune. Because the, it's a little like real estate today, you know, do you figure your equity in your house as part of your net worth. Well, in the Roman times, the number of slaves that a person had determined his net worth. So if on Monday a slave, each slave was worth $500 and on Friday he was only worth $100, so you didn't have a good week. 
And that is what happened with the Jewish slaves. They were poured on the market so quickly and in such vast numbers that they literally caused a financial panic within the Roman Empire. Second thing about Jewish slaves that the non-Jewish world knew was that you could sell them to Jews for a higher price. The concept of pidyon shvuyim, of redeeming captives, takes precedence in Jewish law over everything. And therefore, uh, once the Romans caught on to that, so in effect it became extortion. But the Jews paid the price. There were very many wealthy Jews in the Roman Empire. Jews collected money. Uh, Jews were able to, uh, to work out underground railroads for escaping slaves. The Jews took care of themselves to the extent that they could. And therefore, what happened is that in a short period of time, you had vast amounts of Jews who lived all over the Roman Empire. They were called freedmen. Maybe that's where the name came from. I don't know. They were called freedmen, which meant that they originally were slaves, but now they had purchased or obtained their freedom somehow. And many of them became citizens of the Roman Empire, and many became citizens of Rome. The city of Rome became now a city that had a very large and strong Jewish population. The city of Rome, in fact, resembled somewhat uh, the situation of the city of New York, of a disproportionate large Jewish population who were extremely influential and who not only were influential, but they fashioned Roman life according to their, uh, according to their ideas and according to their way of life. Josephus writes that many of the most famous uh, shops and... Uh, stores in Rome, you know, right, the Fifth Avenue of Rome, was closed on Saturday because they were in Jewish hands and the Jews wouldn't open the store on Saturday. Thank you to uh, Rabbi Wein for presenting the program on the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, wanted to thank everybody for listening today and joining us here on JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network. Nachum will be back tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time with J.M. and the A.M. want to wish you all a good week, a good Shabbos, and uh, God willing, we will see you back here on uh, J.M. Sunday. We will be here on Tishabov presenting programming for the day.
You've been listening to Matis Weingast and JM Sunday on NahumSiegel.com right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.